Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. Hi, everybody from Wondery. Welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. Of all the times and places we've gotten to explore during this season of Tides of History, my favorite might be Bronze Age China. There are a whole bunch of reasons for this. The really striking nature of the archaeological remains, ranging from cities to human sacrifices to oracle bones, the obvious global importance of understanding early China, and most of all, the ways in which the archaeology, contemporary written texts, and much later histories all intersect, line up, and clash with one another as we attempt to understand this distant but complex and fascinating past. Today's guest is one of the world's leading experts on the Chinese Bronze Age, especially the Shang Dynasty. Rod Campbell is Associate Professor of East Asian Archaeology and History at New York University's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. Over the course of his career, he has excavated extensively at a number of sites in China and published on a variety of themes and topics related to the Chinese Bronze Age. His most recent book, A Really Insightful Look at the Shang and What Made Them Tick, is entitled Violence, Kinship, and the Early Chinese State, The Shang and Their World. Professor Campbell, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Patrick. It's an honor to be here. I'm really excited about this. Well, so I want to start with something really basic, which is just how did you get interested in this in the first place? What drew you to this time and place? Um, <laughs> that's actually, okay, that's a long story, but I, uh, the elevator speech version of it is um, I was a student studying Chinese literature, and I started studying um, kind of the early poetry and things. And I was reading all this um, secondary literature that suggested that um, early Chinese civilization differed from that of the West in terms of its literature. The West has epics and that China was a civilization of peace and harmony of the drum and the bell. And then I was reading these early dynastic hymns about, you know, the king raised the battle axe and then, you know, offer the left ear of your enemies to the ancestors. And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> And so I, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll look into the archaeology. So I picked up Casey Jiang's um, Shang Civilization, and I was blown away. Like, human sacrifice? What? What is going on here? Like, none of this made any sense to me, based on what I had previously understood about early Chinese civilization at, from a kind of Confucian lens. It immediately fascinated me. The Shang was just, it was unexpected, and yet somehow had to be related to the rest of Chinese history. And so that, that struck me as a kind of a problem that I decided I wanted to pursue. In what you mentioned, there are a couple of aspects that I think show up as, as strong themes in all of your work up to the present day. So, I mean, the first being kind of the disconnect between later written texts, what they have to say about the Chinese past and what the archaeology shows us. So I think that hits on a theme that that is really central to your approach to the period, which is kind of the disconnect between what the later written sources have to say about the Chinese past and what the archaeology seems to show about it. Yeah, I mean, the Shang is a really interesting period for being one of these liminal periods. You know, we have the first texts, but they're not, you know, everything you would maybe want them to be. And then there's there's archaeology. It's kind of analogous to Troy. There's this deep cultural narrative about what the Shang is. Then there's this archaeological site that seemingly 
validates all this, but then does it? Because there's all kinds of stuff that don't appear in the later texts. So depending on whether you decide you want to believe texts written a thousand years later as, as utterly accurate, you can definitely find things that seem to be accurate. On the other hand, they're missing all sorts of things like human sacrifice. And it's fascinating, I think, also because it sheds light on the way people reconstruct Chinese history in general, what their goals are, their methods for doing it. I, I think it's, from a kind of even more abstract sense, fascinating in the sense that history, it's composed of traces or fragments. And it's, it's fundamentally wrought out of our concern for the past, for what sort of past we care about. Because, of course, no one records everything or you know, can possibly uh, remember everything. So then which stories do we want to tell ourselves? And so I, I find this really fascinating because with archaeology, you have sort of like a detective going through someone's garbage, right? All of these patterns that the people who produced them probably weren't aware they were doing it. Then you have texts which are conscious, but they're very limited. Um, then you have later texts reflecting back on this period, but with their own sort of agendas um, and visions of what the past was and why it matters. And then contemporary, uh, or actually 2,000 years since then, people thinking about what Chinese history is. And so there, you have all these kind of contrasting lenses and, and this kind of wonderful, rich palimpsest of pasts and fragments of the past. It's really interesting that you put it that way because it feels like there are different realities at play there, right? There's kind of the lived experience of people who are making tools, digging ditches, growing food, doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then you have people who are self-consciously trying to carve out a space for themselves through the medium of written texts. Uh, and then you have people looking back much later and like, all of those tell you something. What exactly how you put those together is a really, really difficult task. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the oracle bones, just to pick out that thread for a second, are really interesting as, as sources of history because they're, they're kind of like, if you can imagine we had the nightly prayers or fragments of the nightly prayers of 150 years of American presidents. And that was the only text we had for, I don't know, 20 and 21st century America. What kind of weird perspective would you have, right? Fascinating on certain levels, right? Full of kind of lacuna and sort of things like, what the heck, what is Wichita? Where, you know, where, where the heck is that, right? Um, and why does this guy keep talking about, is this a dog? You know, like, you know, so there's, there's all sorts of really strange things. But in another sense, it's kind of interesting because the lens of the oracle bones is one in which the king is attempting to figure out, usually the king, trying to figure out what to do. The context is that the world is populated by spirits and ancestors. And that basically everything that goes wrong is, is caused by the spirits or ancestors. And so when something does go wrong or possibly might go wrong, um, you need to figure out which ancestor is doing it and what they want to make it stop or who you get to intercede with on your, on your behalf. So unlike, say, texts, monumental texts you have in other civilizations, like you know the famous contrasting Hittite and Egyptian depictions of the Battle of Kadesh, right? Where they <laughs> completely different accounts. The, the Shang Oracle Bund inscriptions are interesting because there's no, there's no reason to lie. In fact, there's every reason to tell the truth. Because if you ask the ancestors if you need 3,000 troops, but you only have 300, 
you only have yourself to blame if things go badly. <laughs> so it's it's actually kind of interesting in, in terms of how potentially authentic the concerns are and how sort of unfiltered maybe. Thinking about it in global perspective, there really isn't another body of early texts that are like that, that come from a high status context in that quantity that speak to those particular sets of concerns. Like there are kind of analogs elsewhere, but later or lower status things like votive offerings, where you kind of get a sense for what people are concerned about and how they're trying to, uh, you know, fix their problems. But there's nothing quite like this, especially the sheer volume of them. I mean, cause there are tens of thousands of these Oracle bones. Yeah. And it's kind of a weird historical problem too, because uh, Oracle bones existed before the Anyang period. And they exist after the Anyang period. I think actually you can still find people using oracle bone divination in China today or in East Asia. But it's the only period, with small exception of the beginning of the Western Zhou, in which they're actually recording their divinations or sometimes recording what they divined on afterwards. For some reason, we still can't totally figure out. Um, so it's a little bit like you know, Mesopotamian texts being made out of clay. Therefore, when the archives burn down, we end up with them kind of like accident of history sort of thing. For some reason, they decided to start writing these things down. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this archive. Yeah, you can never underestimate the sheer randomness of the survival of historical texts. Like that is often a story in itself. And you're only ever getting kind of weird snapshots. Like, for example, what happened to be on the shelves when an archive burned down? Um, you know, when somebody couldn't get a hold of a nice roll of papyrus, so they wrote on wood bark and then the site got flooded. Like, And so you're never getting a representative sample of what writing looks like. But that's especially interesting with the Oracle Bones because they are the earliest writing in, in Chinese. Where do you stand on this? Were there other texts we don't have access to? Or, or is this really kind of the earliest expression of written Chinese? Yeah, I mean, that's a really complicated and controversial topic, but I think it's pretty well established that there was writing on bamboo or wooden texts. There's a graph called Tse in the Oracle Bones and, and someone who's called a Zuo Tse in, we can see in Western Zhou bronze inscription. So it it seems like they're recording certain kinds of information on on wood. So we don't obviously don't have that because wood doesn't preserve unless you have a waterlogged anaerobic site or something really desiccated. We also have bronzes. Uh, bronze inscriptions start, you know, first with just names, but then later uh, whole kind of inscriptions from, from the end of the dynasty. But then the, the sort of larger question is like, how early does it go back? So is Anyang actually the beginning of it, even if there are writing on other media? Or are there like centuries or even millennia in some people's opinions of, of writing before this? I'm personally agnostic, simply because having some scratching on, a, on pod shirts does not a writing system make. You actually need like, sentences to really have a good and, and also you know if you have a preserved medium like potsherds or jades or something where occasionally you find some scratchings on it you would expect to find more than just one or two cases where that happens anyway so I, without some archaeological breakthroughs we're probably never going to have a consensus on this one just kind of more or less skepticism about when it begins if I had to be less agnostic, I'd say it, it's probably sometime not long before Anya. And my, my rationale for that is just that um, there are a lot of non-linguistic features for the Oracle Bones, much like some other early scripts, where some of the things that they're doing seem to have a lot more to do with graphic design than they do with the transcription of natural language. 
And a lot of that play goes away in later forms of the script. So it's kind of a, I suppose, a, a bit of an evolutionary extrapolation. But that's one reason I don't think it was too much earlier than Anya. And the other one is that even though you have elites emulating orogobones all over uh, North China, as well as non-elites, uh, actually, because their orogobones are everywhere, but you don't see inscribed orogobones or really inscribed anything outside of a really restricted area of Anya, the palace temple area. So yeah, I, I think if it if had been invented centuries earlier, like some people claim, and was already widespread, where is it? Mm-hmm. That I mean, that would fit in kind of global perspective with other origins of writing, right? Especially what you mentioned about the traces of, of a graphic design system, like that would fit with early writing at Uruk, that would fit with um, er- early hieroglyphic writing in Egypt. It comes from an extremely restricted context. It's fairly formulaic at the very beginning. And then as time goes on, you can see the evolution into something that is more closely connected to spoken language or actual representation of spoken language. Right. So we've been talking about Anyang, we've been talking about the Shang. I want to start with a really basic question. What is the Shang dynasty? When we are we look when we're looking at Anyang as an archaeological site, we're looking at the oracle bones, we're looking at later texts. Do you think we're looking at a local dynasty that happens to have become really important in later accounts? Are we looking at an actual wide-ranging state? I mean, what what is this in your perspective? I mean, I, I think it's bits of all of the above. It is a dynasty. Whether or not it's the same as the Shang dynasty recorded in later texts, if you wanted to be really skeptical, well, we know they call themselves Shang, so that's not problematic. We also know that they venerated ancestors who accord well with the, the king list from the Shiji. It's possible these ancestors weren't actually rulers. Um, so if you wanted to be super skeptical, you could basically say we don't really have any evidence for the Shang before Anya. I'm not that skeptical. I, I think there is there's enough lines of evidence that sort of suggest that probably there were a few centuries of a dynasty um, that was probably calling itself Shang before them. And it's, it is a dynasty in the sense of a ruling family, at least as constructed by their genealogy, which of course could be fictitious and all this kind of stuff. But then does that make it not a dynasty? Um, you know, <laughs> I think that makes it, that makes it very dynasty-like, again, in kind of global perspective. Like making stuff up about your ancestors to better fit the present is real, real solid dynastic stuff. So that's definitely part of it. And so I think whatever's going on at Anyang from an archaeological perspective is also clearly related to what I would call the, the Central Plains Bronze Age. And that, or Central Plains metropolitan tradition might even be a better way of putting it. And that starts uh, with Arlito, which most Chinese archaeologists would call the Xia Dynasty, or the very end of the Xia Dynasty. But from an archaeological perspective, it doesn't really matter. I mean, in the sense that, um, I don't know, what's a a good historical analogy? I suppose like um, whether Uruk is actually ruled by a Sumerian dynasty or Akkadian dynasty. It's a different dynasty, but the material culture basically doesn't change, um, as far as I understand, anyway. There are some, perhaps, well, okay, so there's a whole bunch of things going on archaeologically, and some of those things are local. Uh, Some of them are what I would call this kind of pans, uh, central plains, metropolitan kind of tradition, which I use that word because it picks out the differences between what's going on in these, what I call mega centers, or these really big capital sites, versus what's going on in the quote-unquote provinces, in the peripheries. And the other interesting part of this is that I feel like each one of these um, centers, Arlito, Arligang, or Zhengzhou, Anyang, 
they all begin as uh, really heterogeneous combinations of different types of pottery, different types of houses, and in the Anyang case, even have evidence for different populations based on isotopes. So it almost seems like each one of these kind of megacenters is its own new project that's kind of sucks people from the four quarters into this new assemblage of civilization. And sure, there's a dynasty on top of it, but I think that's actually the least interesting thing from a social perspective. At what point and how do, does someone start thinking of themselves as Shang? Is it the first people who moved to the great capital? Or is it like, you know, four generations on when everyone's stuff all looks the same at that metropolitan site? I mean, another sort of urban-rural thing that's interesting is in the Western Zhou, they make a lot... So in the text, you can see there's a clear distinction between people who live inside the cities versus people who live outside. And I, possibly this, something like this could be relevant to the Shang too, that there might be very strong urban versus rural uh, identities, but I don't have any direct evidence of that. Well, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of interesting threads I want to follow up on that you just mentioned there. I mean, I think the first is like, again, in global perspective, these sites are so big. I mean, they are, uh, Anyang is probably the biggest site in the world at the time it's being occupied by the Shang. Its predecessors are also among the very largest sites in the world in terms of the area that's contained within walls. Like these are really, really, really big sites. They're drawing in lots and lots and lots of people. The extent of their geographic connections is really, really big. And so, I mean, you can understand the tendency to look at them as capitals of really big, important States, but there's always a question of like, does political control match up with the geographic extent of a of, of a pottery type? Like that's less, you know, that's right. less clear. Well, I mean, I think in part the the use of the term state doesn't help us out here, and I, I think the reason for that is that it's you know status or state comes from the French état, and it only gained its its sense of a kind of political a, a sort of monolithic. Um, you know, like the state kind of idea began with a sort of a theorizing of the of absolutist monarchies in Europe and then the nation state. But then archaeologists, new evolutionary archaeologists picked up sort of Weberian definitions. And Weber was really clear. He's talking about the emergence of the modern state, not ancient ones. But that then somehow got projected back into everything from Uruk to, you know, the United States. And it's like, well, is it really all one thing from like 3,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. And I think, you know, since the late 90s, um, archaeologists who have been interested in this topic have more or less come to the conclusion that there's a lot more variety in ancient political formations than than people used to think. So the question is, you have these big centers, um, you have a a wide expanse of, of material culture. What does that actually mean in terms of politics? I have a model for it. I'm not sure if it's accurate, but I think one of the problems is to, to sort of project this kind of idea from a modern nation state, right? That you have like a, a border and then everything within it belongs to the Shang kingdom equally. But, you know, the, the traditional Chinese saying that the heaven is high and the emperor is far away. I mean, that's certainly applied in the Bronze Age. What I think is going on is that kind of various systems of indirect rule which has all sorts of analogs elsewhere in the world. Various people are called ho, or basically lords, and they seem to have their own domains. What I'm actually working on now is trying to figure out what some of the economic connections are between the various parts of this. So I think there's actually a whole bunch of ways of looking at it. But I mean, interestingly enough, the earliest Chinese self-representations of political space is as a kind of nested series of circles. 
with a king's kind of direct control um, domain in the center and then the center of like subordinate lords and then sort of allied lords and then sort of like basically people you're at war with and then like beyond that barbarians and further on monsters and dragons and so forth. Well, that I mean, that's fascinating because that is actually a much more realistic model of how states operate based on, you know, the last half century or so of good anthropological work on what states do and how they act. That's a much better representation of state space than the kind of model of the modern nation state where, you know, everything that happens within a particular defined border is the state. I mean, state space is discontinuous, right? There are places where states find relatively easy to control and places where they don't. There are places where direct rule makes a lot of sense and other places where, you know, you're 10 miles from the capital and the tax collectors won't go there. But that's a really fascinating kind of mental image. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say, nothing, because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I've done a lot of work on state stuff lately, and I wrote an episode a couple of months ago kind of comparing early states, and like none of them are alike at all. They all do different things. The bases for their authority are different. What they're trying to do looks different. The way they understand what they're doing all looks different. I mean, so like the idea that that we can use state as kind of an overarching concept to help us understand like stages of political development just seems at this point it just seems crazy, crazy and unhelpful. Yeah, no, I, I I very much agree with that. So I think, I mean, now the sort of the game, and I think this is a really interesting game, is figuring out like, well, how do these things actually work? And then I think once we have a better handle on on that and we're getting there, then going back to sort of a comparativism that is perhaps a little bit sort of breaking down some of these components and then comparing. So comparing things like modes of kingship or modes of sovereignty or uh, economic systems. So kind of fragmenting up this kind of monster into its individual pieces. And then I think we'll have, we'll make more progress with good comparisons. It's one of the things that I really enjoy about your work in general, and I especially enjoyed about your book on the Shang, is you do a really fantastic job of 
digging into the internal logic of how this world works. I mean, based on the Oracle bones, based on kind of underlying patterns in the archaeology. But I mean, I think it comes as close as anything I've read to understanding the Shang on their own terms. So, I mean, you use the frames of violence and kinship. How would you apply those to the Shang? How do they kind of help us unlock what the Shang thought they were doing? Okay. Well, I mean, this obviously, and thank you for your your kind comments. I'm, I'm not sure how close I am to what things were like for them, but I, I tried. But honestly, it, it all kind of came back to this question of like how human sacrifice made sense. That was sort of my mission 25 years ago and that I pursued for quite a while. But as, a, as an anthropologist, right? So they're human beings. They were doing something that must have made sense for them because they did it for an, a long period of time and on a large scale. But as a student, when I was you know, start first researching this, it seemed like there were two responses. One was, yeah, they do human sacrifice. But look at these bronzes. Aren't these bronzes amazing? Right? Or, well, you know, it's the Bronze Age, and what do you expect? Right? And it's like, well, neither of these seem like really good historical or anthropological <laughs> explanations, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, that suggests to me there's something that's not being understood here, which is basically if you can reconstruct the context in which this could have made sense, then you can understand something about the way they're understanding the world, or at least some of them. And I'm not saying that the king's perspective is the same perspective of the slave about to be beheaded. So to do that kind of deep, I would call it sort of an anthropology of deep time, obviously you need a lot of context. And so because, as we were talking about earlier, you have sort of bad texts, fragmentary archaeology, you know, so you really kind of want to use every single source you can possibly get and then try to weave it all together. My basic methodology probably comes from the analogy I used earlier as the sort of a detective looking for things, the patterns that people unintentionally produce as sort of telling you something interesting about what's going on. And maybe the first, archaeologically, the first thing I thought there was a way of looking at it was where does the social energy go? So if you compare like Egypt or Mayan, you know, there's no pyramids, there's no ball courts, but there's these like bronzes, which, you know, Uhong calls monumental. And he's onto something there. These kind of courtyard structures, uh, the massive human sacrifice, the sort of investment in tombs. You know, thinking about this, I thought there's actually something that actually ties all these things together. These are basically the locations, the media, the mode of hierarchical ancestor veneration. So all this attention is in energy is being focused on this one thing. And then in the Oracle bones, you can sort of see why. As I said earlier, everything basically from enemy attacks to whether or not you're going to have harvest to uh, whether the gods are ending this settlement, right? <laughs> or the king will die or everything comes down to the will of the, the spirits and ancestors. And so if that's the case, and you genuinely believe this, then this whole kind of apparatus of ancestral sacrificial machinery makes a lot of sense. It it sort of tries to take care of everything, like a whole multifaceted talisman of good luck. Yeah, I mean, that's the part that I thought was so compelling about the way that you presented this was it did make sense that instead of trying to impose an outside model of saying, okay, well, this is how you exercise social control, or this is how you display legitimacy and power. And then applying that framework to understanding the actions, 
you moved outward from the actions themselves and the ideas underpinning those actions to a broader framework. So yes, there's a sense in which this does support the legitimacy of a ruling group. There's a sense in which this does display the power of a ruling group. All of the stuff that like, you know, if you were doing comparative political theory, you would be looking for there. You find it, but you find it on the basis of the actions instead of vice versa. I think theoretically, I would say that I'm in favor of underdetermining theories as opposed to overdetermining ones. That's probably another theme through my through my work. But um, it's the way I think history works, right? There's just so much more variety out there than some, especially mid 20th century theories would have us believe. Uh, and so then, how do we account for it? Also, how do you do justice to the fact that this is part of a kind of Chinese tradition? Um, so how do you link it up to what came after as well without overdetermining again based on, I mean, you know, in a funny way, there's so many ways that this period can be overdetermined by either an anachronistic view of the past based on early imperial texts or an overdetermining anthropological view that sees states are things with four levels of settlement hierarchy and, you know, three levels of bureaucracy or whatever. And all of this derives from theory that yeah, anyway, that is problematic. Um, and so, like, well, it must be a state because it has this number of, like, settlement hierarchies, therefore uh, it has all these other things. I would prefer to actually find evidence that it has all these other things rather than derive it from a theory. Yeah, this is, I mean, okay, so there are a couple of things that I want to follow up on there. The first is that, yeah, I mean, you can see this so clearly with arguments about like, what was the Indus Valley civilization? Because it has all of these things, and yet there is not the slightest bit of evidence for a ruling class. The things that you're supposed to have in a state don't seem to be there, and yet you have these wonderfully complex, enormous, well-organized cities, so how do they work? The state, not an especially helpful answer for you there. But on the other hand, the state seems to be so central to the understanding of the Chinese past over an extremely long period of time that trying to disentangle the state from early China seems more difficult than it would be for a lot of other civilizations of this particular age. I'd say yes and no. I mean, the word this state is actually even more problematic in Chinese. The term is guojia. But actually, that comes from Japanese, and it was used to describe nation states. And it literally means like polity house or home. So it's a literal translation of nation state. And in the Warring States, the term guo basically means a walled city and then became something more of a polity. In the Shang, they don't even use that term. The term is yi, which means settlement. And the, the great settlement Shang is a dai, but... There is other ease. But so basically, whether it's a hamlet of like 50 people or a metropolis of 100,000, they're all called E. The conceptions of the locals themselves radically change in terms of how they're understanding urbanism, how they're understanding, or their terminology anyway. And for polities, go, undergoes huge amounts of transformation. So what's interesting, though, is the way that ultimately Han Dynasty or early imperial normativity, I suppose, political normativity, sort of ideas of like that there is an emperor or Tianzi and, and sort of bureaucracy and all these other things very easily get slipped into like when people are reading the Shiji account of like the Xia Benji or the Ying Benji, so the, the, the sort of dynastic histories. Because of course, the historians who are writing them, their political mental horizons are empire. And so when they hear, you know, they're talking about a Xia king, they 
you know, Sima Qian constructs him as an emperor. But if you actually look at the details of what he's describing, one, there isn't actually much more information than just a king list. And then on the other hand, there are all these like clans fighting each other. And it's like, well, this actually doesn't sound all that much like Han history, right? If you, if you read between the lines, this, a Chinese uh, scholar named Lin Yun made this argument a long time ago, that actually, if you didn't take a kind of overweening top-down imperial perspective, you can actually find all sorts of evidence in ancient texts for people talking about the past as a kind of much more fragmented, non-unified perspective. The next part of this is the kind of contemporary discourse, nationalist discourse, which nationalism everywhere basically sees the past as a kind of timeless extension of the desired for present or future maybe. So this, this is, again, interesting and slightly political, more than slightly political, with the current administration leaning towards authoritarianism, not leaning towards, being extremely authoritarianism. So authoritarian. So th therefore, ideas of the past, whether people, and, and I don't want to accuse my Chinese colleagues of being overt apologists for the administration because they're not, but the times you live in construct the way you think about the world. And so I think it becomes very natural to think of the Chinese past as being always had been authoritarian. But actually, the sort of the greatest authoritarian in Chinese past, Qing Shi Huang, the first emperor, was an utter villain in Chinese history. He was like basically Chinese Hitler or Attila the Hun until Mao. Mao was like the first Chinese leader to resuscitate his reputation and say, actually, Qing Shi Huang did lots of good things. Coincidence? <laughs> you know, I, I think it's not surprising the Communist Party likes that kind of authoritarian leader. But classical Chinese literati did not. Well, this um, is one of the things that I find really interesting about your work is you have a really well-founded distrust of these kinds of centralizing top-down ways of understanding, especially the Chinese Bronze Age, but going back to the periods before that as well, which matches the archaeology a lot better when you have every 30 or 50 kilometers or so along the Yellow River in, in this central plains, another large settlement that has a settlement hierarchy that seems to be subordinate to it. That much better fits a kind of a fragmented world than one where you have an unbroken list of powerful dynasties stretching back to the Xi'an and before that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that statement. I think it does agree better with the archaeological record. And honestly, more than just that, I mean, it's also... So there's that tradition of later texts, which, I mean, it, it's not just nationalism. It's also a kind of, um, if you grow up within a kind of tradition, and probably a good analogy would be like the Iliad. If the Iliad is what got you into Anatolian archaeology, then you really want the Iliad to be true. That's your childhood. That's like, you know, you want to find like Achilles and whatever, right? So it, whether you, you're conscious of this or not, um, those kind of stories really become a kind of basic narrative for you. And so I think because those early imperial histories have such a large kind of discursive footprint, it becomes hard to sort of think outside of that box, I think, for a lot of, especially Chinese archaeologists, because frankly, Western archaeologists don't even know that history frequently or aren't well versed in it, which is another kind of problem, actually. So I think it very naturally kind of produces a kind of different sorts of discourse. But at the same time, I think and I hope that kind of constantly confronting an archaeological past, which is not the same as the historical one, 
will increasingly lead people to the conclusion that, you know, the past is a foreign country and there's a lot of strange things that, that basically it's a lot weirder and wonder, more wonderful than we previously imagined. And I think that's the thing we constantly are discovering. Another part of it too, which is a little bit hard to wrap our head around when we think about like the Chinese Bronze Age or the or Chinese archaeology, is this term China and this idea of China as a nation state. But the PRC has a certain geographic footprint, but that has obviously nothing to do with what was going on in the Bronze Age, right? The borders were not the same. PRC is a diverse place today, ethnically and linguistically. But if the further you go back, the more diverse it becomes. And so some of these like cultures discovered in, say, like Liangzhu uh, around Shanghai area, the odds that they were speaking anything related to modern Chinese are just about zero. They're probably Austroasiatic speakers, probably more culturally related to, you know, the Austronesians, the sort of northern dynasties in, in China. But because they were discovered within the boundaries of the PRC, they become part of this, like, narrative about Chinese archaeology, which, on one side, there are obviously connections between jades and other sort of, like, styles and people are traveling and all, but in all sorts of directions. But it's interesting just how the fact that we call it China and the fact that China has had this narrative of, of continuity for millennia, um, this very strong sort of self-identity, that it shapes, even warps the perspective of the past in certain ways. I mean, an interesting historiographic analogy is the Egyptians. The way that stuff changes in Egypt, but they claim it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, when you talk, when you add up the total number of years in what we call ancient Egypt, right, in the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom, the periods of fragmentation and decentralization are almost as long as what we think of as the classical periods of Egyptian history. They're not that much shorter. So we're taught to see pyramid building and the Valley of the Kings as the norm in Egyptian history, but that's not the case. They're just as long periods of decentralization or weak kings who couldn't get their damn monuments built. Like that kind of stuff is just as much a part of the story of Egyptian history as what we think of as the standard stuff. And yet it gets excluded. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's also true of Chinese history. And two of the last three dynasties were conquest dynasties. Just this kind of the sense that the past is really important and this continuity with the past is really important. That's an absolutely authentic aspect of Chinese culture and Chinese civilization, which one of the ways that it's, I wouldn't say exactly unique because it's similar to perhaps Egypt in some ways in this, this respect and some other places, but it's definitely a feature. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. So speaking of this kind of heterogeneity, I, I want to ask you about a site that you and your colleagues have been have been working on recently, Ximao, uh, relatively recently discovered, dates to between about 2200 and 1800 BC. It's really big, really big site. Uh, so what have we learned about Ximao? How do you think that this site it should change our understanding of that particular period of China's past? Yeah, I mean, I think Ximao is probably the most exciting site in Chinese archaeology right now. 
I haven't actually even been there though. So <laughs> I'm interested in it. I've seen pictures. Some of my colleagues uh, work there. Uh, Sun Jiu-Yong is the excavator. He's doing incredible work there. And one of my collaborators has written on it recently. So why is Shamo exciting? Although when I was a grad student, it was mentioned as a site where Neolithic jades were found and that maybe someone should do some digging there. But it was just kind of one of these things that no one had like seriously investigated. So who knows? So it was never taken seriously. And then with systematic field survey, uh, I believe it was Sun Jiu-Yong, discovered that in fact, there's this system of fortifications or this massive stonewalled 400 hectare site on the edge of the Ordos. To give you an idea where this is and why there shouldn't have been anything there at 2000 BC, those walls were originally believed to be part of the Great Wall. Obviously, that is on the periphery of traditional China, right? That's that's the place where Han Wudi was fighting the uh, the Xiongnu. So, why is the largest site known currently understood for the Chinese? You could call this the Neolithic or the Bronze Age, depending on what how you want to define those terms located in this place that's like up on the edge of the step, basically. So it shouldn't have been there. It shouldn't be this big and it shouldn't be this weird. Um, so stone walls is also weird for, uh, if you're looking at things from the central plains, um, walls are made of rammed earth. So stone architecture is something we associate with or had associated with the ancient Near East. Although it, it turns out it's kind of a local feature as well. So in, in a kind of band across the north of China, and it's a sort of inner Mongolia and places like this also have these kind of tradition of building in stone, all kinds of other weird things. So the, like those jade uh, scepter things they found were located like stuffed in the walls. So on the one hand, People had noticed these kind of jade scepters and associated them with Sanxingdui or perhaps Arlito. So Arlito especially considered one of these central plains mega centers. So the crucible of civilization, right? And it's getting stuff from other places, but it's the one who's setting the fashion trends and so on and so forth. But then it turns out that actually, possibly, these things all come from this like weird site up north. Uh, there was a few centuries earlier. And then putting jades in walls is just, strange from an archaeological Chinese archaeological perspective they jades were found in, in in tombs they're ritual objects why would they be in in walls so that's just weird then you have all these like carved stone heads and other stone carvings which on the one hand tantalizingly suggest later uh, central plains type motifs but at the same time are carved in a way that's stone carving or carving faces on stone and things like this are, is not something that we see like a later manifestation of in the South, but there are some examples sort of on, in the steppe. And so then there's things like uh, mouth harps, which are known from Mongolia, these kind of uh, Altai type daggers or a, and a mold for making them. So there, there's all sorts of things that kind of make the site look like it's connected to the wider Central Asian, North Asian, steppic world as well as tantalizing things that suggest it has some kind of relationship to sort of the central plains and, and things to the south. So how we try to interpret this, right, is like the, on the one hand, you have some people who argue that Shema basically conquered everything. And you could criticize this and say that those kind of narratives reproduce a kind of linear national narrative where you have like the torch of Chinese civilization being passed from one major site to the next. The very opposite of this would, would see Shimao as something like alien, right, on the edge of China that then brings in all this stuff um, that then changes Chinese civilization from the outside. I think both of these are way too simplistic and that what we actually have is evidence for a kind of interconnected world, which I guess is kind of 
maybe not surprising. <laughs> it's not surprising in theory, but I think it's always surprising to find a site like this in practice where you know you're looking for it because you can see the long-term evidence for technology transfer, for the movement of crops across Asia. You can see all this stuff happening. You see the effects, chariot technology, bronze metallurgy. You see these things moving. But at the same time, finding a concrete place that existed where you can watch that process happening is always kind of freaky. And also because the site doesn't necessarily look like you think it's going to like sites that are kind of halfway in between two worlds or tied to two different worlds don't look like half and half, like they're their own weird thing. And so I think that always kind of that always kind of weirds people out. It's hard to fit while at the same time you fully expect it. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it really brings home a point that hopefully will be developed that actually none of these things like are, are it's only weird from a, from an idea that the step is the step and China is China and that they're they're ultimately different. But it forgets, I think, the more accurate point that all of these things from Arli To to Anyang are sort of nodes and wider networks. And they're always in a state of becoming something. And that this was just the network is had you know, its central node was somewhere else, uh, perhaps, or these are different networks. So the other interesting thing too here is that the sort of the pulses of interaction uh, that you alluded to with, uh, you know, wheat and barley and sheep and goat and metallurgy and stuff like this, that pulse of interaction is around the Shermal period. And so whether it comes through Shermal or other places, probably more than just one place, but it's a moment in history, in, in Eurasian history, when there's a lot of novel things that are going to have a big impact being introduced to what's now China, um, but have different impacts in different locations. So Shermal, for instance, becomes, or at least the, the excavators argue that it's, it has a large pastoral economy, um, which is something that's a little bit different from the central plains. Um, in some parts, it seems like people are using secondary products like wool from sheep. And in other places, it looks like they're just eating them. And so, again, it gets back to the, the idea of a kind of monolithic China or a kind of monolithic China versus like foreigners that that's some older scholarship still reproduces is, is utterly not based on facts. That, that There is so much local variation and interaction between people probably speaking different languages, having different cultures, identifying themselves differently, and yet interacting in some ways, you know, through alliances. I mean, when the Zhou conquered the Shang at the head of like an alliance of, I don't know, 30 some groups, and the Zhou Yan is a complete, <laughs> this idea that you can, you know, based on sort of cultural history that you can then identify the Zhou through their pots has constantly run into problems because the, the entire area of the Way River uh, Valley Basin is just this heterogeneous like palimpsest of, of different potting traditions. But actually that kind of makes sense with what the text tell us too. <laughs> Well, I mean, and even in this period, the steppe is a pretty complicated place too. That it too is mm. a, a patchwork of different ways of life. Some people are dedicated pastoralists. Some people are growing some crops. Some people are probably predatory raiders who spend the time in between uh, growing seasons going off and fighting people. And that's how they made their living. Like there's a lot of different stuff happening on the steppe too. And even when we talk about interactions between quote unquote the step and the settled world you don't know which group on the step you're talking about and what their specific sets of traditions might be like i just did a, a whole bunch of work on the the bactrian margiana archaeological complex and early indo-iranian speakers and like there's no reason to think that 
early speakers of Indo-Iranian stuck together and they would have preferred to ally with one another as opposed to like some chieftain of the Oxus civilization who's got a nice city and nice goods to trade with you. Like there's no reason why different groups can't have different kind of patterns of interaction with different parts of the settled world as well. Yeah, no, and and there's, I mean, really exciting work coming out of Inner Mongolia and Mongolia these days too. I'd love to know exactly what's going on with the Deerstone people and, and all that stuff, right? And it's it's around the time, well, okay, so now talking about Anyang period. Anyang period is around the time, or perhaps a little later, when you start to have perhaps the first mounted warriors in Mongolia or somewhere north of China. And that's going to have a big impact later on. So I think all through this period from you know, the third millennium BC to the end of the second or beginning of the first are, is a period of changing lifeways in this whole kind of Eurasian area. And that has all sorts of knock-on effects for things that are, <laughs> the archaeological cultures that are now located within the boundaries of what are now nation states, basically. <laughs> so kind of by way of concluding, because I've taken up so much of your time here and I, I can't thank you enough for chatting with me about it, but what's most interesting to you? I mean, we've talked about a whole bunch of different kinds of developing lines of inquiry, new kinds of evidence that are emerging, but what's most compelling to you? I mean, what do you think are going to be major themes, topics, methods, approaches that you really want to follow up on and, and dig into? Well, I mean, there's things that I think are broadly interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, the discoveries, right? China's had this like incredible wealth of archaeological discoveries. I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. It's a big country. And there's a lot of areas that haven't been all that well explored. And I would not be surprised to find more Shermaos or more like Huanbei, for instance, like a, a Shang site discovered just north of the Huan River, right beside Anya, the most intensively excavated site in Chinese archaeology for like 100 years, and yet they find a site just across the river that was buried, right? So it just shows you that we have no idea what's out there. And so I, I expect to see really exciting discoveries in Chinese archaeology continue. Maybe I'm biased, but I think maybe the most exciting <laughs> area of world archaeology is just in terms of like discoveries. In terms of methods, I think uh, scientific archaeology is having a huge impact in China. Um, more and more young scholars getting um, trained up in developing new analytical techniques, which is always exciting because it basically everyone opens up a new archive, um, allows us to ask questions we hadn't thought we could ask before. So that's exciting. Personally, I'm interested in trying to reconstruct the Shang economy, and I see more and more people getting interested in looking at material culture less from a cultural history perspective, more from trying to figure out what can this tell us about human behavior. And one of the things that people have started to focus on is production and exchange and sort of trying to understand, yeah, economic history basically from this. In, in the West, there's a Myself and some other historians, actually, a lot of people now working on the first millennium on texts and archaeology. And there, there's kind of a battle brewing between, like in the classics, like go back like 50 years, right? And it's, it's the primitivists versus the, the modernists, I suppose. So people like myself and a few others are arguing that the Shang actually have a much more advanced and integrated economy than people previously gave them credit for. And the traditional, at least Western, understanding of this economy is that it's basically you don't really have markets or marketing or really any kind of economy 
beyond sort of elite redistribution until the Eastern Zhou, like halfway through the first millennium BC. Based on my work, like gigantic bone workshops producing like hairpins that are then found 200 kilometers away in a little village, I think that's just completely untenable. But one of the things that I'm focusing on Oh, well, you've come to the right place for that. I, I cut my teeth doing uh, Roman economic history. And oh. so that that debate is very, very familiar to me. And I always fell on the modernist side of that debate. Like the part of the I mean, part of the problem, not to drag us too far off course as I was trying to bring us to it to an end. But like the the evidence for bulk exchange is so hard to find. Like it's so hard to find low value goods in the archaeological record, the kinds of things that are being transported in massive quantities that speak to a much more market oriented economy. Like that stuff is really difficult to to suss out. It's and especially it's getting easier now with things like lipid analysis of pots. And like so you can see perishable goods that are traveling, but still still hard. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No. So that's that's an exciting one. That's really cool stuff. Uh, Professor, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and thank you for your work. Thank you. I, I had a lot of fun. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Tides of History ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA or on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick. I write on other topics at patrickwyman.substack.com. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Jenny Lower Beckman and Marshall Louie. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This mother Lied like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.